2: Good evening and welcome to From the Median, where we are concerned with the middle ground, not just to understand both sides of an argument, but also to awaken the consciences of those who are neutral or indifferent to this, the greatest civil rights movement of all times, the pro-life movement. This evening, we continue our Bringing America Back to Life series. Tonight, we will feature a presentation from our 2023 convention. Our speakers' ideas will inspire you with principles, experiences, and wisdom as they join us to pave the way back to life through prayer, action, voting, and education. I am pleased to introduce Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, founder of the Ruth Institute, an international interfaith coalition to defend the family and build a civilization of love. Dr. Morse earned her Ph.D. at the University of Rochester and taught economics at Yale and George Mason Universities. She has authored or co-authored six books and spoken around the globe. Dr. Morse impacted local politics as an effective campaign spokeswoman for the California's winning Proposition 8 campaign, defining marriage as the union of a man and a woman. Her talk, Understanding and Combating the Global Sexual Revolution, underscores the importance of family and faith as we combat the spiritual darkness of our time.
3: Hello, everyone. It's, I'm very glad to be here at Cleveland Right to Life. This is one of my favorite events of the year, and so it's a pleasure to be here once again. Um, The Ruth Institute, as was mentioned, is an interfaith international coalition to defend the family and build a civilization of love. The QR code that you see here... Uh, you can scan that and you can receive a copy of these slides uh, that I have here. I have uh, over 100 slides. It's an absurd number of slides. But I did that for you so that there are references on there that you can go back to again and again. And so you're welcome to scan this code and you will receive a copy of these slides. Um, you will also receive a copy of a brand new ebook that we have just produced called Protecting Your Family from the Top Five Gay Myths. Um, which are obviously a problem, and it's a good thing to be able to understand what those five myths are. So if you scan this QR code, uh, you'll be taken to a page where you can give us your email address, and you'll receive both the slides and this free e-booklet. I also want to mention that uh, Sunday is Detransitioner Awareness Day. How many of you know what a detransitioner is? You know what that is? Okay, this is a word we didn't think we'd ever need. But these are people who have tried to change the sex of their body... Have figured out that it isn't working and are trying to figure out how to get their bodies back and their lives back. So, creating awareness of these people is something that's going to be taking place nationwide on Sunday, and there's information about that out at the Ruth Institute booth. So, if you want to pick up some postcards or something like that. I knew it was a little late for, you know, to organize a rally in Cleveland, okay? Um, but on the other hand, I wanted you to be aware that this is something that's going on. All right. Now, scattered throughout these slides, you're going to find Uh, slides that are color coded and I do this color coding so that it's easy for you to find them there are tactical tips in green There are references, my favorite, in red, red slides, okay? So if you want to know what, where, I remember she said this or that. Um, If you just flip through and find the slides that have a red background, you'll find the the links to those type of references. And then finally, other organizations that you might want to be aware of, uh, if you're involved in any of these areas of of, uh, Endeavor, uh, those slides will be in brown. So you can, again, once you have these slides, this will be a permanent resource for you. All right, Um, and just to start right off here, these are the standing resources that are available from the Ruth Institute, our YouTube channel, and so on. Um, And at the bottom of every single page of the Ruth website, you can get to all of these things. Now, um, I would like everyone in the room to please stand up for me. Come on, I know you can't. If you can't, then that's okay. Okay, no pressure. Okay, but if you are a baptized Catholic, please sit down. Okay, so, yeah, I knew this was kind of a Catholic gab fest. But, but, so I want to say to those of you who are not baptized Catholics who are of some other faith, I just want to say I'm so glad that you're here and so glad that you're part of what's going on here. We really value you, Okay. But, uh, but I also want to say that because I'm now about to say something to our fel- my fellow Catholics, and so I know you're here, guys, but I'm about to talk to the Catholics, okay? So just, you'll have to deal with it. The Catholic Church, as you all know, is a worldwide organization of over one billion rogues, sinners, and problematic people, <laughs> right? And that's just the people who are alive today. Think about all those Catholics from 2,000 years ago. We got some crazy people back there, okay? So, now, th- the reason I'm bringing that up is that we will, some of the time, have to apologize for the conduct of some of our fellow Catholics. That's just a fact. It's going to happen, okay? However, we must never, ever apologize for the church's doctrine. Never. We must never apologize for the teaching, particularly the teaching surrounding marriage, family, and human sexuality. We must never apologize for that doctrine, okay? So that's what I want to put front and center into your mind here to make that distinction between some of the people that we have to deal with, right, uh, and the church's teaching itself. Because there are a lot of frustrations that we're dealing with, um, and that, that, that's just a fact. And. The reason the Ruth Institute is an interfaith organization is because it's my conviction that we have no right to keep this teaching to ourselves. We have it's, The church's teaching is so good and so life-giving, we have no right to keep it to ourselves. So we've got to talk to everybody as best we can in the most accessible way that we can figure out. So the overall theme that I'm going to talk about with you today is I'm going to call this the sexual constitution here to start with, okay? And this is a funny word, and this is a funny phrase, probably a new thought for you. But if you think about the Constitution of the United States, it sets the rules of the game of government. It tells you if you want to change a law, how you change a law. If you want to interpret the law, how do you interpret the law? That's what a constitution does, okay? But... You can also talk about a sexual constitution that tells us the rules of the game for having sex, having children, getting married, all that kind of stuff, okay? What are the rules that we're all playing by? At one time there was something that we could call, nobody ever called it this as far as I know, but we could call it the Christian sexual constitution. There was a set of rules that everybody kind of understood, right? And that governed the basic ways that you decided who's allowed to have sex, who's allowed to have kids, what are you supposed to do, how are you supposed to treat your spouse, what are you supposed to look forward to, that kind of stuff. Okay, That's the Christian sexual constitution, which has been systematically piecemeal replaced by the sexual revolutionary sexual constitution. So that the Christian constitution is basically gone, and we have lost it bit by bit. We have lost it piece by piece. I don't think we're going to get it back piecemeal. I don't think that's quite possible. I don't think that's how it's going to work. But the fact is, we're all playing by rules of the game that create incentives for people to behave very, very differently than the Christian sexual constitution did. Okay. So what I'm going to do in this talk, I have two main parts to this, uh, to this talk. Uh, first of all, I'm going to explain... The sexual revolution. I'm going to talk with you about the sexual revolution, what it is, what I mean when I use that term, okay? So, and you'll, you'll, this will give you a basic framework for understanding what we're dealing with. The second part of the talk, which will take about 15 minutes, will be a defense, a specific laying out of the Christian sexual constitution. I call it defending Christian, traditional Christian sexual ethics without fear or apology, um, and this is designed to be a talk that you could give, that I could give, that anybody can give. I'll give you the slides. I'll tell you about how to get the slides later on. But the idea is this. If we don't know where we're headed and what we want, it's going to be a lot harder to get there. All right? So I want to give you the big picture. And for some of you, this will be review. Some of you will remember this world, right? And some of you will go like, Wow. Really? Okay, but that, so that's the two main parts of the talk, of, of, of how we're going to approach this, alright? So, the first part, what is the sexual revolution? There are really only three big ideas that you have to master. I know it seems like a big mass of confusion. Okay, and it is, and it's designed to be confusing. It's designed to set you off and put you off guard and so on and so forth. But in fact, there's only three big ideas. And every piece of craziness that comes down the pike you can put into one of these three categories and you'll know what to do with it, okay? So that makes it a little bit more manageable, all right? So The Sexual State, my latest book that was mentioned and which we have for sale out there at the, at the book table, that, that's what this book does, is it lays out the basic structure of understanding the sexual revolution. I wrote this book in 2018. If this book were a catalog of the crazy stuff that's going on, it would have been out of date the minute it was printed, right? Because it's just accelerating, right? But instead, what it is is a framework... And that framework is still working, okay? And so you can continue to benefit from understanding how it's going. And, and the fact is you can't neglect any of these big three areas, even though all of you are going to have a special something you specialize in, put most of your attention on as far as learning and talking about it and so on. But you really need to be informed about the big picture, in my opinion. I think you'll be more effective. Wherever you fit into this whole thing, you're going to be more effective if you, if you can see the bigger picture. So... The three big ideas of the sexual revolution is that the sexual revolutionaries believe that a good and decent society should do everything possible to separate sex from babies. I call this the contraceptive ideology, okay? Separate sex from babies. And this is where abortion and contraception come into the picture. This is what most of you are most immediately concerned with is this part of the sexual revolution. But there's a second part And that is that the revolutionaries believe that we should do everything possible to separate both sex and babies from marriage. So you don't have to be married to have sex. You don't have to be married to have babies. Okay? That this is an important plank of the sexual revolution. I refer to this as the divorce ideology. Okay? It basically says kids don't really need stable relationships with their parents, and therefore you don't need a permanent relationship between parents. Okay. Now, uh, the third part is that a good and decent society should do everything possible to wipe out all the differences between men and women except those explicitly chosen by the individuals, which gets us into the whole transgender aspect of things. And this we call the gender ideology. And now a lot of people call that the gender ideology, too. This is no longer about something unique to us. Okay. Now, uh, as I mentioned, this n- nice bright red slide will give you a 45-minute presentation on each one of these three things in case you're interested in more information. Obviously, I'm going to zip through uh, the highlights of each one of these three uh, things. Now, tactic tip I'm going to give you right now. If you study a topic every day for 30 minutes, at the end of five years, you'll be an expert. And at the end of five years, you're going to be five years older anyhow, so I don't want to hear any excuses that you're too old to get started, okay? So so just just have that in mind. All right. Now, let's talk about the contraceptive ideology. Do you love this slide, fellow Catholics? Humanity, I told you so. Okay, um, <clears throat> so I like to ask the question this way. What has contraception done to society? Okay, instead of the theology, there are a lot of people who talk to you about the theology. I'm a social science person, I wanna just talk to you about what has contraception done to society. What it's done is created a society where sex is normally a sterile activity where the expectation is you can have as much sex as you want without ever a live baby showing up. And so sex is a normally, normatively, a sterile activity with no moral or social significance. That's what the contraceptive ideology has done to society. All right? So I, want to, I always like to make a difference between the ideology versus the technology. Have, anybody, have you ever heard anybody say, the pill changed everything? You ever heard that? Okay, I think that's a really weird thing to say because the pill, last I looked, is like an inanimate object and it just kind of sits there. It doesn't actually do anything. So what do we really mean when we say this? The kind of pill changed everything? What it did was allow a certain kind of ideology to take root and it was planned to do that. People picked out the idea of, gosh, let's invent a pill. Right, that, that was a human being who decided to do that. The pill didn't just fall from heaven or something or from the pits of hell. The pill, the pill didn't just arrive. People decided to do this. So let's make a difference between the technology that is supposedly available now and so wonderful and the ideology, because it's the ideology that we really want to focus on. So it turns out there's something that demographers call, and now I'm going to go full nerd on you guys, there's something called the first demographic transition where fertility declined by half, okay? Fertility declined by half. This phenomenon of declining fertility was discovered in 1929, which I estimate to be just a few years prior to the introduction of the pill, okay? And it was based on evidence over the previous 200 years that over the previous 200 years, fertility had declined by half. How did this even happen when the pill wasn't even approved until 1960? Well, um... How did the jolly peasants of France figure this out without the pill? There are several methods that they use that people have known since time immemorial, okay? First social construct, delayed age at first marriage. If the social custom is you're not allowed to get married, women are supposed to get married when they're 22, you're going to have a different fertility outcome than if you're supposed to get married at 16, okay? So societies figure this sort of thing out. They have different rules, all right? Periodic, periodic abstinence, that's a way of changing your fertility, right? We, we all understand this, right? Extended lactation, coitus interruptus. With the exception of the last one, all four, the other three, are morally acceptable to anybody. There's nothing shocking about any of that, that the methods of limiting births have been understood for a long time. So what was the point of the pill? This is what we have to ask ourselves. Margaret Sanger always used to say that it was because of her mom had 12 children, we have to have a pill, we have to my poor mother, blah, blah, blah. Okay, really? Was that really the point of the pill? So her mom wouldn't have to have 12 children? That could have been solved other ways, first of all, right? We see that it could be solved other ways. But also, they kind of let slip their true motives. In this book that was written, this book called The Birth of the Pill is like a celebration of contraception, right? And how, how wonderful Margaret Sanger is and so on and so forth. In this book, the author says um, that 85% effectiveness of the pill would be no good to anybody, Okay, he makes this assertion because he wants you to think that what the pill gives you is 100% effectiveness. That's what he's trying to make you think. Everybody's trying to make you think that. So he lets this slip. 85% effectiveness is no good to anyone. Okay, if it was really about Margaret Sanger and her mom with the 12 kids, okay, actually 85% effective would have been just fine, right, because it would have meant having a child every, every two years instead of every year or something like that. So that wasn't not really what they were thinking about. Really, that's what they wanted you to think they were thinking about. It wasn't really it. Actually, the current effectiveness of the pill is 91%, just for the record. Okay, it's not 100%. They want you to think it is, but it's not. So what they were really after, people, was sex outside of marriage. They were really after recreational sex outside of marriage. That's what, that's what it was about all along. Okay, So uh, I think this is important for us to understand that this is where this ship was going all along, with sterile sex as the norm. So that's briefly on the contraceptive ideology. I want to turn now to the divorce ideology. When the Ruth Institute talks about the divorce ideology, we include any uh, social structure that deliberately separates children from one of their parents. So in addition to divorce, we also would consider Single parenthood, unmarried parenthood, particularly unmarried parenthood by choice, and particularly um, third party reproduction, in vitro fertilization. When we say third party reproduction, we mean buying sperm and egg, okay, and creating a child uh, through, through commercial means, all right? So uh, a, any adult plan, apart from an unavoidable tragedy, because there are always going to be some unavoidable tragedies, any plan that a child would be separated from one of their parents. That's what we consider the divorce ideology. Now, one of the pamphlets that we've produced at the Ruth Institute is this uh, document called Children and Divorce, And if you open it up, we have them out there. If you open it up, it will show you this table, which shows you some of the risks that children of divorce experience. Children of divorce are at higher risk for all the things on this slide, getting sick, falling behind in math, smoking, sleep problems, less parental supervision, thoughts of suicide. Okay, this whole chart here. Every one of these things has been studied thoroughly by sociologists, statistical analysis, doesn't mean every child experiences every one of these things. Let's be clear. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that children whose parents are divorced are at higher risk for all of these things happening. We have a a study by a friend of ours, Dr. Pat Fagan, who wrote a thorough analysis of surveying all of the literature on this topic, and it's called The Effects of Divorce on Children. Forty closely typed pages with over 300 footnotes. This is not a one-off. You can't explain this away. All right? there are, there's stress on the children of divorce that cannot be underestimated or explained away. And so when we ask ourselves, well, why is this? I like to think, you know, I think about a few people that I know, okay? And the most important thing for all of us to have in our minds is that the culture is telling us that the kids are resilient the parents are snowflakes. If the parents don't have exactly the love life they want, the parents will fall apart. But the children are resilient. Children will be fine. They don't really mind being going back and forth from one house to another every weekend. The kids are fine. But let me tell you two stories of people I know that will put a little flesh on the bones of those statistics. My friend Jennifer, her parents were divorced when she was an infant, a toddler. and. Her, both of her parents remarried. When she would visit her, and, and they had kids. Her mother had children with her new husband. When she would visit at her mom's house, there would be pictures of her mom, her mom's new husband, and their child that they had together. There'd be pictures of them hanging on the wall. There would be no pictures of Jennifer with her mom and dad hanging on the wall. None, not, not one. She would go to her dad's house And there would be pictures maybe of her with her dad, but no pictures of her mom's side of the family. She told me she has two pictures of herself with both parents. Okay? But she's seeing her half-siblings having Full time, full relationships with both of her parents. Okay, and she's going back and forth every week. Well, her half sister doesn't have to do that. So there's an inequality between the children of the first relationship and the children of the subsequent relationships. I submit to you that this kind of stress is part of what is driving all of these negative outcomes in the social science literature that you see. Okay. Now, the second story I want to tell you is to just show you that divorce is the gift that keeps on giving. My friend Amanda is a respected uh, real estate agent in uh, Lake Charles, a pillar of the community, and she says to me, Jenny, my parents were divorced when I was five years old, and it's still bothering me. And I come to find out her father was dying. Her stepmother would not allow her and her sisters to go visit their father while he was dying. This is divorce. Now, you may say not all divorces are like that, and you'd be right. That's true. Not everybody's like that. But within the divorce ideology, there is nothing to stop it. Within the divorce law that we have, there is nothing to stop it. Okay? It happens far too often. Now, who benefits from the divorce ideology? Um, the family law bar consistently, by, by the bar I mean family lawyers, Okay, the, the divorce, divorce lawyers, the people who make money from managing divorce, okay? Um, they consistently oppose any attempts at divorce reform. There have been, I've followed several through several different state legislators and it's always the family law bar that you know raises her hand at the end, puts a bunch of money in, and so on and so forth. It's always blocked by them. There are, uh, we should also be aware that the family courts have an enormous amount of power over the day-to-day lives of the the family, okay? And if you know anybody who's been through this, who's been under the supervision of the family court, you may be aware that the family court is managing their money, they're managing how much time you can spend with your own child, they're managing all kinds of aspects of the daily life of the family, whether where you can send them to school, what religion they can have, uh, all these things end up under the jurisdiction of the family courts. And, so, and, and of course, the other group of people who enjoy this whole thing are people who, wanted, who, who just like the idea of being able to do what they want sexually and move from one thing to another. So this is why these are the people who are benefiting from the divorce ideology and why it's such a permanent feature. Now, uh, at this point, before I move on to the gender ideology, I want to give you another tactical tip here, uh, something that I uh, learned the hard way Uh, And that is, you need to be prepared to face some of these questions about the sexual revolution. Because if you're not prepared, and and I'm not telling you, you all have to do it all the way I do it, or you have to go out and you have to talk about every issue all the time or whatever. But if you're freaked out, your opponents will figure out that you're freaked out over what issue you're freaked out, and that's the one they're going to zero in on and give you a hard time about. Okay, So it's really good to prepare yourself at least to know that there are answers. Maybe you can't remember them all right then, but at least you know, yeah, there are answers, and I can be confident that I'll ha- have something intelligent to say. This came up in the context of divorce ideology when we were dealing with the whole question of whether we should redefine marriage to treat same-sex couples the same as opposite-sex couples. Okay, Because I would say children need there, originally, the campaign wanted to say, children need a mother and a father. And people shot back and said, well, wait a minute. Uh, if, they, if they really need parents, divorce, wrecks the, you know, divorce separates kids from parents more than gay, gay people ever are. Because there's just never going to be that many gay people compared to how many divorced people there are. So why don't you guys do something about divorce? And after a while, I, I came to the conclusion that this was a question that deserved an answer. Right, that deserve to be addressed. right? Um, so I no longer will say that kids need a mother and a father. Kids need their own mother and their own father unless some unavoidable tragedy takes place to prevent it, unless something unavoidable happens to them. But your first pri- primary responsibility is to, is to do everything you can and make a plan that they'll have a mom and a dad. Um, Here here in Brown is a helpful organization on the question of the divorce ideology, them before us. If this topic is of interest to you, I strongly recommend that you get involved with uh, what they're doing. All right, let's turn now to the gender ideology, which is driving a lot of people crazy and a lot of people want to talk about and learn something about. Um, I will tell you that uh, the gender ideology begins with feminism – When I was a young woman coming of age, when I was a little girl, it was okay to say, I want to grow up to be a mommy, right? By the time I got to college, it was no longer okay to say, I want to grow up to be a mommy. And I see a lot of the ladies nodding their heads. You know what I'm talking about, this transition, okay? So the original gender ideology of feminism taught us that uh, men and women are identical, except women are better, right? You know what I'm talking about here? (laughs) Okay. Um, And so therefore, therefore, the conclusion that they came to is that it's a moral imperative to wipe out all the differences between men and women. If you see any differences between men and women, there's some kind of injustice going on in the background, and we have to do something about that, okay? That was the original feminism. Now, the new gender ideology also says uh, the differences between men and women are insignificant, uh, except... We're going to wipe out all the differences except the ones the individual specifically chooses to bear. And here we're thinking about the transgender people, the people who have a, uh, a desire to present themselves at least as a member of the opposite sex of which they were born. So if we ask ourselves who benefits and finances, who benefits from the gender ideology, who finances it, there's a very important article um, that if you're interested in this question, I strongly recommend. And by the way, when you see an image like this on the screen, very often if you when you get the slides and you click on it, it will take you right to the article. Okay, um, so you can follow up with that. But basically, what this article is tracing is who's paying for all the transgender clinics, who's financing this stuff, and it turns out that there are several very large foundations that are pumping money into this. And many of these foundations have ties to pharmaceutical companies. And why would that be the case? Because if you are going to try to present yourself as the opposite sex, you are going to be a lifetime customer for pharmaceuticals, for some kind of chemical intervention. No matter what you do, if you do something surgical, you're going to also have to have the hormones to go with it. So this is a big part of the problem. And it's, generally speaking, men who are in favor of this stuff. And in the United States especially, we now see a number of feminists, radical feminists and lesbians, who are opposing the whole transgender agenda. And what you find when you talk to these women, who you know, we would normally not have all that much in common with them, but what you find is that they think the body is significant. See? And that is what brings you to, to help understand what's really going on in the background. Now, I wanna say a word to you about what the word transgender actually means. All right, what does this word even mean? Before I go through this, because I'm not going to go through the whole shoot and match here, you can see i got a long list of here, okay? This is based on a talk that we had at our 2021 Summit for Survivors of the Sexual Revolution. Uh, we had heard that from people who are uh, sidewalk counseling, do we have any sidewalk counselors here? I bet we do, yeah. We had heard from some of our sidewalk counselor friends that Planned Parenthoods were now giving out Transgender cross-sex hormones and the counselors didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to say So in conjunction with another organization the American College of Pediatricians We created a pamphlet for the sidewalk counselors to use and we have some at our booth out there But anyway, I got Dr. Erin Brewer to come and talk a little bit about the psychology of the trans-minded client And it's a 15-minute talk, so I'm not going to tell you everything she said You can go to look it up if you really want to. I want to go back to this slide where she talks about the different kinds of people to whom this label is applied sometimes, okay? And I want to just start at the top. The intersex individuals are the people who have some kind of medical, chromosomal, um, uh, or, or hormonal di- um, disorder of di- sexual development is the proper term for it. And we, Again, we have a whole video on that topic. Um, it's a medical condition, not a psychological condition. It's diagnosable. It's objective, okay? Unlike all the others, which are not in that category. Autogynophilia, I want you to be familiar with this term. Autogynophilia is a man who becomes sexually aroused by seeing himself in women's clothing. And I hope I ha- I'm not offending young ears here, but this is, that's what these people are. And so when you're looking at these old men who are dressed like women and who are not even remotely Uh, plausible as women, if I could just say that. They're not fooling any, right? I mean, please. I've been a woman my whole life, you know. Um, This is a very different kind of person from the teenager who has what is called rapid onset gender dysphoria. You can see that down at the bottom of the list. This is a young girl who has been on internet chat rooms and has decided from all of her friends and her little new peer group that she's really born in the wrong body and needs to do something, okay? These are very different people. All all these different types of people are having the same word attached to them, same label being used, okay? So my tactical tip for you would be this. When somebody is using one word to literally mean six different things, they are up to no good. All right. That confusion is willful. That is deliberate confusion. That's not a mistake. That's not an honest mistake. You can't blow that off as an honest mistake. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So my tactical tip to you is: watch your language. You must never use their terminology. Okay. You got to be really cautious about that because their terminology is very carefully calculated to blow up in your face. (laughs) Right? You know, you try to use their language, you. It's going to be a problem, okay? So, anyway, um, so my preferred terminology, by the way, is Bruce Jenner is a man who says he's a woman. I make no claim as to why he thinks that. I don't call him gender confused or anything like that. He's a man, first off, who says he's a woman. This is a true statement. All right. Now, sports. I want to talk briefly about women in sports because this is where the contradictions in the gender ideology show up the most dramatically, Okay? That back in the day during the Clinton administration, there was a big push to use Title IX of the Civil Rights Act to say that there must be an equal number of sports teams for girls and boys. There must be an equal number of sports players for girls and boys. Some of you remember that? I don't know if any of you are tracking that. This is in the 90s. They went around closing down women, uh, men's wrestling programs, men's swimming programs, and they turned dance into a competitive sport so they could get more girls involved in it. Okay? So girls in sports, yay, girls in sports, rah, rah. Okay. Now, the very same provision of the Civil Rights Act, Title IX, in the Obama administration and in the Biden administration, is being used to say everybody can compete in the sex of the gender that they identify with, which, as every sane person knows, will mean the end of women in sports. Are we aware of this? Do I have to? Okay, presumably I don't have to explain that to anybody in this room. Okay? And I want you to just look at the look on this referee's face. He's thoroughly disgusted that he has to say that this guy beat the girls. That this guy beat up girls and he gets a prize. I don't like it. All right. So how do these versions of the gender ideology fit together? How does this contradiction work? In their mind, how is this working? What they're both saying, what these two things have in common, is that the human body is unimportant. The human body can be overwritten. It can be transcended if you have enough social reconstruction or... You can have individual personal reconstruction using technology and medicine, but the human body is unimportant that 's what these two things that seem like they 're contradictory that 's what they really have in common and Of course, this is incorrect this is an old this is a very old heresy called Gnosticism when you say the body doesn 't matter um, and I wish we had a few Dominicans in here to help us out with this because honestly, we need defense of the body. <laughs> Right. All right, so there are several groups I want you to be aware of. One of them, Tradition Family Property, is out there. You need to go say hi to the TFP guys. Um, the, are, these are two activist groups, people who will show up if there's a drag queen story hour at your local library. These guys will show up and help you out. There are a couple of organizations that are providing legal support if you need to sue somebody, If you need to go argue with your school or your school board, these guys will help you. And then finally, there are a couple of parent support groups out there that I would strongly recommend. So if you need any of that, this is all available to you. So ask ourselves this question, why did the revolution pivot to transgenderism so quickly after redefining marriage? Obergefell, uh, 2015, almost immediately, boom, transgenderism everywhere, right? Okay, why did that happen? Because the gay marriage debate, so-called, was never really about marriage. It was really about the revolution. It furthered the goal of destabilizing the sex of the body, which, of course, transgenderism takes to the next level of destabilizing the sex of the body. For the true revolutionary, the issue is never the issue. The issue is always the revolution, and the revolution is always about power. That's what you have to keep in mind. The issue, do not get hung up on the issue. The problem with the sexual revolution, let's review the three points of the sexual revolution, and you'll see right away what the problem is. You separate sex from babies. Actually, as a matter of fact, sex does make babies. Are we all on board with that? Okay, we want to separate sex and babies from marriage. Actually, kids do need their parents. Kids really do need their parents. We want to wipe out all the differences between men and women. Actually, men and women are different, okay? The body is actually significant. And so what this means is that the sexual revolution is irrational. It's impossible. It cannot sustain itself. It has to be propped up continually using force, this power of the state, and propaganda, massive amounts of propaganda. It is a totalitarian ideology that no Christian should have anything to do with. Yes, you can applaud that. Yeah. Okay, I'm running out of time here, so I'm going to just briefly say the sexual revolution needs the state. And I want to just mention that the state enforces the sexual revolution using judicial rulings, including prejudicial rulings from the bench where they say you can't present this evidence. Um, special legislation like to wipe out crisis pregnancy centers and uh, reparative therapy, so-called, um, and also regulatory agencies. There's a lot of action going on in regulatory agencies right now. I'll just point that out to you and we'll uh, we, I, if you want to ask in questions, we can talk about that a little more. Once you start looking, you're going to see that the sexual state is everywhere. It's really everywhere. And so now what I want to do, because I don't want to shortchange this last part, I want to talk about Defending traditional Christian sexual morality without fear or apology. This is what we're positively for. I spent all this time talking about what we're against. Let's talk about what we're positively for now. And this is a talk that I hope that you could give yourself if you wanted to. We'll give you the slides, give you the script. You could do it yourself. A little bit like Dr. Jack Wilkie's slides back in the day. All right. So here we go. Boldly defending traditional Christian sexual morality. If you see a broken down house in an otherwise nice neighborhood, you might think to yourself, what is wrong with these people? They should pull themselves together. But if you see an entire neighborhood where every house is broken down, you start to wonder, what happened here? And then somebody tells you that a hurricane came through. Or maybe two hurricanes came through. And it's wrecked everybody. Everybody's affected. Large houses, small houses, houses in the city, houses in the country, houses on the shore, people inland. Everybody's affected. Well, now you don't blame people for having a broken down house. Instead, you ask, what can I do to help? Where do we even start with this mess? Now look at this poor guy in this slide. He was prepared at least partially. He's got an electrical power generator. He's got a a gas can. But until he can move his truck, he can't get very much gas. He can't move the truck without a chainsaw or a bunch of people to help him. And it occurs to you, we're probably not gonna be able to solve this on our own. We're going to need some outside help. And I can tell you, in Lake Charles, Louisiana, after Hurricane Laura, In 2020, over 23,000 utility trucks and linemen came from all across the country to help us. Now, something like this has been going on with the family. We've been living through a social and cultural hurricane for decades. Back in the day, when divorce was around 6%, and even poor people got married and stayed married, you might think badly of people who got divorced or who had kids out of wedlock. Today, divorce disrupts the lives of a million new children every year. Today, over 40% of all U.S. births are to unmarried women, and over half the births to millennial moms are to unmarried women. And so now you ask yourself, what happened here? Evidently, something big has happened that affects everybody. We've been living through a cultural hurricane called the sexual revolution since roughly 1965. That hurricane says everybody can have as much sex as they want and nothing bad will happen. The revolution says kids are resilient. They don't need their parents all that much. The parents can change their sex partners and living arrangements all they want and nothing bad will happen. The hurricane says that differences between men and women are not all that significant. We can change our sex roles and even the sex of our bodies any way we want and nothing bad will happen. But many bad things have happened. So how might we make things better? Traditional Christian sexual ethics teaches something very different. We believe that every human being who's ever been conceived comes into existence because God wants him or her to exist. God could have created each and every new human being with a special act of creation requiring no human input at all. But in fact, in the world in which we actually live... New human beings come into existence as the result of interactions between a man and a woman. God wants our participation in his loving creation. He has built this into our bodies. So let's focus on one issue. What is owed to children? The Ruth Institute believes that every person has the right to know his or her cultural heritage and genetic identity. Every child has a right to a relationship with his or her natural mother and father Except for an unavoidable tragedy, we sometimes hear people express concerns about children and unequal access to schooling or housing or health care. But I have a different concern: Do kids have access to their own parents? Do kids even know who their parents are so let 's say, as good and decent people, we, we want to make sure that as many kids as possible get to live with their own mom and dad for their whole childhood. How would we go about doing that? Well, for the child to be in relationship with both parents, we'd want the parents first to be in relationship with each other. We'd want them to have a plan for cooperating with each other in the raising of the child. We'd want them to get along reasonably well with each other. And we want to limit the things that distract parents from paying attention to the child and being loving toward the other parent. Of course, sometimes distractions are unavoidable. People have accidents, get sick, have bad days, and are grumpy. But we'd want the adults to avoid the avoidable problems, such as passionate or sexual relationships with somebody who's not invested in the child. So how could we arrange this kind of long-term cooperation between parents so that the child can have access to both of them without too much trouble? Well, let's spell it out in terms of the traditional prohibitions that are so often associated with Christianity, the thou shalt nots. No sex before marriage or outside of marriage. No divorce without serious cause. And no attempts at subsequent marriage while the spouse is still living. And absolutely no anonymous donation of sperm or eggs. In that situation, the child never gets to know one of the parents. And finally... No petty criticism of your spouse. That was always part of the traditional Christian marriage package, as we can see from this quotation from the old Baltimore Catechism. This catechism was used in the United States for generations to provide reliable information about traditional Catholic teaching. The question is, what are the chief effects of the sacrament of matrimony? And the answer is, the special help of God for husband and wife to love each other faithfully to bear with each other's faults, and to bring up their children properly. Now, instead of thou shalt nots, let's restate the elements of this lifelong cooperation plan in positive terms. What is it that we're positively supposed to do rather than what we're not allowed to do? Well, get married before having sex. Only have sex with your spouse. Stay married unless somebody does something really awful. Be nice to your spouse. And finally, be satisfied with the children that God gives you. Be satisfied with the number and timing of children, whether he gives you a lot of children or just a few children. Be satisfied with the condition of the children that God gives you. This illustration is of former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum and his family, including his disabled daughter, Bella. She has a rare genetic condition that she was not supposed to survive for very long. And as you can see, Bella loves her daddy. And as you can also see from this photo of her first Holy Communion, her entire family dotes on her. What is this whole package called? This is traditional Christian marriage, supported by traditional Christian sexual ethics. That's the package. The overall social result of this system is for every child, a mother, and a father. No matter how rich and powerful, no matter how influential the parents might be for every child, a mother, and a father. No matter how poor or weak or socially insignificant the parents may be for every child, a mother, and a father. For every man, no matter how rich, no matter how powerful, one and only one wife. For every woman, no matter how beautiful, no matter how glamorous, one and only one husband. This is the social result of Christian sexual morality. True equality. For every child, a mother and a father, for every man, one wife, for every woman, one husband. We could even call it reproductive equality because people rich and poor are reproducing on equal terms. This is true justice. We could even call it social justice. Traditional Christian sexual morality secures this kind of equality and justice for everyone. This is the birthright of all children to be conceived in the loving embrace of their own mother and father married to each other for a lifetime. Now, you may ask, what about adoption? We have to make some provision for the care of children whose parents are unable to care for them. We must remember that children in these situations have already sustained a loss We owe it to them to give them the best we can and to try to replicate as best we can what they have lost. In some cases, this will mean a relative will care for them. In other cases, it will mean that they'll be adopted by a stable, loving, married couple. In all cases, it means that we give priority to the needs of the child for parents over the desires of adults for children. Now, some rich and powerful and influential people don't like this system They think there are too many people in the world. They've spent billions of dollars trying to reduce population growth. They want to replace the traditional Christian sexual ethics with a system more to their liking, a system that allows them to do what they want. They try to convince us that traditional Christian sexual morality is outdated. They say, we have contraception now, so traditional Christian ethics no longer needed. But all forms of contraception sometimes fail. And when it fails, what options do the parents have? Well the first option is that they can get married and raise the child together. Not ideal if the parents are not really a good match and are being stampeded into a marriage, but it can be made to work. Second, both parents can relinquish their parental rights and make an adoption plan for their child. Also. Not ideal, since the child loses access to both of their biological parents. But the child does have the opportunity to be raised by a stable married couple who love each other. A third option is that one parent raises the child alone with limited and uncertain contact with the other parent. This is worse than not ideal. This is fundamentally unjust for the child. And finally, you can abort the child, which is obviously completely unjust, to the child. So in other words, when contraception fails, the options range from not ideal to completely unjust. And so if we can predict these outcomes in advance, we can truthfully say the contraceptive system is systematically unjust to children. And some people might say this system places a lot of demands on, and hardships on parents. And I reply, when there's something hard that needs to be done, the adults should do the hard thing, not the kids. Some might say that this is... (laughs) Some might say that this is all well and good to be concerned about children, but what about gay people? This system isn't fair to them. Why can't they use the modern techniques that allow them to become parents without having sex with the child's other parent? Because these techniques are inherently unfair to the child. The child is deprived of one parent But not by an unavoidable tragedy. The child is separated from a parent by design, from birth and forever. And so I reply, when something hard needs to be done, the adults should do the hard thing, not the kids. Besides, no one is born gay. There are a number of reasons people experience persistent same-sex attraction. Even the American Psychological Association admits, and I quote, there is no consensus among scientists about the exact reason that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic hormonal development social-cultural influences... No findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. There is no gay gene. This has been proven numerous times, and these slides show just a few studies proving this point. You've been
2: listening to Dr. Jennifer Roback-Morse, founder of the Ruth Institute and 2023 presenter at the Bringing America Back to Life convention.
1: From the Median is listener supported. Visit our website, fromthemedian.org for further information or to make a donation to continue to make this radio program possible. Email us, news at fromthemedian.org or call 440-668-4049. Through our fromthemedian.org website, you can download this or previous programs for your listening pleasure or sign up to receive our weekly preview of upcoming guest interviews. Tune in every weeknight at the same time to listen to another great interview on From the Median as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. This program has been sponsored by Cleveland Right to Life and is responsible for its content.